The first reading is from Zechariah's chapter 9. It's on page 672 of the black ones. Okay. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will rest upon Damascus. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord, and upon Hamath too, which borders on it, and upon Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skilful. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea, and she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it and fear. Gaza will writhe in agony, and Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king, and Ashkelon will be deserted. Foreigners will occupy Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God and become leaders in Judah, and Ekron will be like the Jebusites. I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south, and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl, used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of his people. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. This is the word of the Lord. Next reading is Matthew 21 from verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them straight away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They bought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Uh, the whole city was stirred and they asked, who is this? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? It's a question uh, hopefully that will be resonating to some degree as we look at God's word this morning. Uh, we're going to focus not so much uh, on the Matthew passage, but on that reading from Zechariah. If you're new and uh, just visiting with us today, we've been looking at the book of Zechariah, unusual book uh, in many ways, and it may have been alienating hearing all those names, uh, but it is still God's living word and it still has something for us to learn about him. Uh, and so why don't we pray that we would understand him more clearly. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we uh, thank you again for your goodness to us in so many ways. Uh, Father, again, we thank you for uh, your kindness to us in creation. We thank you uh, for many of us who uh, enjoy good relationships with our mums and for the way that we have been loved by them. Uh, Father, we, uh, we pray that you'd be uh, sustaining mothers amongst us and we pray as well for those uh, whom Mother's Day is a difficult day for a variety of reasons, uh, whether for their own longings or their griefs. Uh, and Father, we pray that um, even acknowledge your goodness uh, in mothers, uh, we would be able to turn our hearts and minds now to what you are saying to us through the book of Zechariah. Uh, Father, fill us with a bigger vision of who you are. Uh, humble us before your word. And change us to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, the people in Jesus' day asked, who is this man? I want to ask you a question about your feelings. I want to ask you, how do you feel about the coming of King Jesus? I'm not asking you whether you think he's going to come. I'm asking you, how do you feel about that? Uh, you may remember there was this big hailstorm about a decade ago in Sydney. Uh, it hit the eastern suburbs in, in 1999, caused about $2.3 million worth of damage. Uh, we, we, there, were, there were quite literally hailstones the size of cricket balls and you know, just as gentle as a cricket ball being hurled from the sky. Uh, we, we lived in the eastern suburbs at the time and um, you know, we weren't too badly affected, I must say, but many uh, of pe the people we knew and, and friends were. Uh, we spent the following day kind of going around to different people's houses, helping putting tarps on the roof um, to try and prevent any more damage going on. Uh, and at that time, one godly woman uh, shared uh, how she was when it all happened, how she was there in her kitchen seeking protection underneath the table and praying. Uh, but she wasn't praying for safety. Uh, she was praying because she thought this was it. This was the moment Jesus was coming back. And her response struck me in lots of ways. Um, in one way, it was a rebuke. Because in the storm, I hadn't even contemplated the fact that it might be Jesus' return. I hadn't even, it hadn't crossed my mind. Now, it, it wasn't, I know that, but, um, but it wasn't even a thought in my mind. And I suppose it showed to me, I, I didn't really live expecting him to come. I'm not going to, but if I ask for a show of hands, I wonder how many of us who believe he's coming back actually think it's going to happen in our lifetime or whether we really think, no, no, it's going to happen after I'm long gone and he long calls me home. And I want to say that's going to affect the way that we feel. It's going to affect uh, our, our emotion towards us. The, the more remote it seems, our emotions will feel all the more remote. And dangerously, it actually means we run the risk of, of our feelings, our emotions, being completely attached to what is here rather than the better future God has promised for us. Now, I want you to be thinking about your emotions today. How do you feel 
towards his coming. Because there was a problem, similar problem in Zechariah's time. Um, Zechariah uh, is continually on about what God will do. He's always trying to lift people uh, and lift their eyes, lift their hearts uh, away from the situation they're in and look all the more to the greater thing that God is bringing about. Uh, so in 9.9, he tells the daughters of Zion, uh, Zion, the holy hill where the temple was built, okay, the daughter, your king is coming. And so what should you do? Be joyous. So it's still about 500 years before Jesus was born. Uh, exiles had come back from, from 70 years in Babylon to this kind of life in Jerusalem, which was fairly disappointing, to be honest. Um, it was uh, economically weak and unstable. They lacked security. Um, now, the temple by this stage, by chapter 9, it has been rebuilt. That's been the big concern of the first half of the book. Great, that's, that's done. But the focus and passions on, of many were still on, on their immediate problem. You know, fix up your own house, uh, re-establishing your, own, your economy, getting the future secure. And even from the comfort of, uh, of modern Sydney... Uh, they're, they're the issues, are they, that capture so often our energy and emotions. And God wants us to lift up our eyes, to lift our, our feelings and emotions and attach them to the greater kingdom he is bringing. You know, it's a word today for, yes, our minds, but even more our emotions. To get our minds and feelings attached to what is coming, not, not simply where you are now. Uh, three, three points I want us to, to hold on to as we work through. Uh, one is that the king is coming with gentle righteousness. Uh, secondly, that he's coming, so be afraid. And thirdly, he's coming, so be excited. Uh, first of all, he's coming. The king is coming with gentle righteousness. So in every sense, the chapter uh, centres around verse 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you. Righteous, having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, foal of a donkey. And I'll take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. See, your king is coming. We don't get how exciting that is because we kind of live in freedom. We vote our government in. You know, they have lived under the oppression of foreign powers. You know, your king is coming, not Persia's king. Your king is coming. Freedom. But it's not exactly how they expect. It's, it's both bigger and yet smaller than anything they imagined. Uh, it's bigger because of the extent of the rule. You know, he's going to rule from, from sea to shining sea. Uh, you know, that is the, the, the ends of the earth. It's all going to be his. He's not going to just rule the little kingdom of Judah. This guy's going to rule the world. He will proclaim peace to the nations. This is a kingdom for everyone from everywhere to join in on. Uh, it's bigger than they could have hoped for, and yet it's also smaller. It's smaller in the, the sense of the kind of king he is. He's not the kind of king who comes in with flashy ostentation. He, he doesn't arrive trying to announce, you know, he, he, with typical kind of brute force that he's come. He comes in gentle righteousness. Uh, he, he rides a donkey, you might have noticed. Now, um, riding a donkey actually wasn't unheard of uh, for princes. Um, uh, Solomon, when he got crowned, he, wore, uh, he was riding uh, a donkey, uh, Genesis 40 anticipated a king would come from, from the line of Judah and he was a donkey owner. Uh, donkeys weren't you know, unheard of, but what's subversive about that is the timing. This, this is a, a peace mission. You don't ride your donkey into battle. 
You don't ride your donkey in to declare, I've come, I'm going to settle everything now. No, no, you ride your donkey when the victory is secure and the time of peace has already come. It throws around our expectations. Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of like the security of a middle-aged guy who's happy driving his kind of family station wagon rather than needing to buy a flashy sports car. You know, that is the security of a donkey riding king. You know, this, this king comes having salvation. You know, it's, it's an expression normally used for people who depend on God rather than someone who brings salvation about. This guy is, is, is humble. He relies on God. He deals gently. He's got this character of righteousness. That means he always deals rightly with people. Your king is coming. Yes, he's got power to rule the world, but, but he's a subversive kind of authority. It, it flips over the way we normally and have come to expect people to use power. We're used to people with power flushing their power around, making it clear that when they walk in the room, everyone knows that they're the important person and you should look at me. We're used to people with power using it to some degree, a little bit self-servingly, if not a lot. We've come to expect that people who have power will use it to feather their own nests. Um, you know, and it's disappointing, but it's not surprising when we see kind of the chaos of Greece that's come about because their leadership weren't very responsible. Uh, or the, the British parliamentary corruption over the past year, or, or the salary cap rorts in Melbourne Storm, or just this week the disgraced Penrith MP Karen Palazzano uh, resigning. You know, it's disappointing, it's just not surprising, is it? And there'll be another one next week of people using power in such a way that is flashy and self-serving and eventually they get caught out. And isn't it so refreshing to have a king that's not like that? And what God is saying is, you lift your eyes from the situation you're in, look to one who is greater, who is coming, who, who doesn't use his power self-interestedly. And in our, in our case, we, we kind of look and we see Jesus has come. Uh, for the people of Zechariah's time, it was all in the future. For us, we're kind of caught. Some of it's yet to come, some of it we've seen already. We, you know, Jesus self-consciously you know, chose a donkey to ride into shouts of acclamation and praise because he wanted people to realise he has come, but he's come righteous and gentle. Uh, he's come with this incredible power that he could stop the whole universe and yet he submits, pulls it completely under control and offers peace to the nations, people like you and I. You know, he came as a king, one you can actually trust, who will always deal rightly with you. And Zechariah wants us this morning to feel something about it. You know, if you felt cold or indifferent, if the kind of question caught you off by guard of how do you feel about Jesus coming, um, then God is calling you to change. You need to feel something. You can't be indifferent. Either be afraid or be delighted. And Zechariah helps us work out which one we should be, whether we should be afraid or whether we should be delighted. Um, Option one. King is coming, be afraid, be scared. Uh, That is, if the king is going to rule from sea to sea, it's got implications for every other security we, we, we have in this world. You know, those who trust in anyone but God's king, be afraid. As 9 1 puts it, the word of the Lord is against. This is a hard word. This is a word to bring down his enemies. And in verses 1 to 8, he kind of unpacks it. As I said, the places are all weird. Um, I don't think, even given a map, we could find any of them. Uh, maybe you could find a couple of them. But in short, this is the nations mentioned are those who are the traditional enemies of Israel, who have been giving them grief for hundreds of years. You know, in verse 1 to 3, it's the nations to the north, the place where so often they've been invaded from. Uh, in verses 5 to 8, it's the people in the south. 
Okay, and, and the action's all framed by, by looking, this sense of what, anticipation, what will happen. So in verse 1, the nations look to see what God will do. In verse 8, it's God who is establishing his temple and he keeps watch. He is looking out over this world. And keeping watch means calling to account those who won't accept him as king. And, and there's two particular errors he highlights, self-reliance and idolatry. You know, those in the north are identified for their self-reliance. In verse 3, Tyre thinks that their wealth and their good economic connections will save them. You know, they are a well-established trading city. They're, they're doing well. They have built a secure empire. It doesn't look like they're going to fall. It's Sydney, isn't it? You know, that sense of securing, we, we, we run a good ship. Well, you know, it's not perfect, but, you know, we're doing okay. God will strip her of it all. Verse 4. The Lord will take away her possessions, destroy her power on the sea, and she'll be consumed by fire. Yeah, the trade will be brought to a halt. They will be brought down. Yeah, and perhaps most strikingly, that language of verse 5, Gaza is going to writhe in agony because they will witness that happen. You know, that, that's the language of you know, this intense emotional anguish. You know, they, they will sense the humiliation over there and see it's coming toward them too. For God has seen the other problem, the problem of idolatry. That's the language of verse 7 with, with blood in the mouth. It's not just, you know, you've lost a tooth and, you know, feeling a bit sore. It's, it's the imagery of what you do in, you know, pagan sacrifice. God has seen their sacrifices to false gods and God's king is coming. And those who seek refuge in any other god or trust in any other power in this world, how should they feel? They should feel scared. And I think this is a word that we need to help our nation to hear. Yeah, Australia is a multi-faith nation, lots of gods. Uh, even more, Australia is a self-reliant nation. Australians pride themselves on that. Yeah, and we feel secure. If we've, if we've got the house, if we've got the job, if we've got the education, then you know, we'll do all right. There's no need to be scared. Uh, in that fascinating 7-Up um, documentary, I don't know if you've ever caught it, it's my, uh, director Michael Apted has followed these kids through from seven every seven years. It's up to, I think, 49, and 2012 we're due another one. Uh, they're great. You should watch them. There's one interviewee um, I remember caught me. He's probably in his mid-30s, a guy called Andrew. Uh, the quintessential upper-middle-class Britain, uh, public school educated, university at Cambridge, became a lawyer. Uh, and in one interview, he was asked what he wanted to give to his children. Education. Uh, his thinking as he went on to explain it was that because then they'd be secure. No matter what happened, they'd be okay because they can always rebuild themselves. Now, that could have been said in Australia, couldn't it? That's our nation. We're, our nation has no concept just how fragile and frail our security is. It's just like Tyre. You know, the education will save us. Or, or yeah, we know the current economic security is, is built on, you know, in a large way, the finite resources of mining. And, and yet we don't feel frail. We don't worry that it'll run out. And, and, yeah, the GFC happens. But, you know, we're back to business as usual. And, and worse still, our nation has no fear when it comes to God. We, 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 aren't, we aren't persecuted like our brothers and sisters in Vietnam on, on the earth. Notice sheet today, there's a bit of info about uh, Vietnam there. Um, we're not mentioned, we're not, we're not, I suppose, suffering like that, but, but God is still mocked here. Uh, we're not a God fearing nation. 
You know, um, Christians are laughed at for their beliefs, um, and often openly. You know, there was a passing joke on ABC Radio this week made about the non-existence of God. Um, it wasn't overly offensive. It wasn't overly funny. Um, it was so innocuous that I don't really remember the details. I just remember hearing it. And it's a conservative station, uh, but there's no listener response. You know, we, we don't get worked up about that sort of thing. Just another part of a bigger pattern of our friends and neighbours who have no sense of right fear that they've invested in a, in a faltering security instead of investing in God's king. Yeah, and as people here today, if we know that the coming king is there, we, we need to help those around us to be appropriately scared. <laughs> you know, no, I'm not suggesting we need to stand on corners and preach fire and brimstone or anything like that. I, I'm, I'm, I don't want us leaving here getting our, our pickets made and the, the, you know, we're kind of standing there when we see the gross immorality of our city and we're holding signs up against them. That's not what I'm hoping we want. But I do hope. I do hope that we would start having the conversations with people to, to help them see the connections where the, the edges of their false confidence is exposed. You know, to, to have that conversation that, that helps people see the spiritual lesson from the GFC or from the, the chaos of Icelandic volcanoes. You know, to, to help people see the reality God is in control and they are not and that there is no safe place except in his king. That king is coming and some need to be afraid. But not all. If he's your king, it's time to rejoice now. How should you feel? Feel joy. You know, the, the dominant theme of the, the chapter is not gloom. This is joy. It's delight. Um, verse 7, did you notice there was a little twist on what's going to happen to the nations? It's all judgment, judgment, judgment. And then halfway through verse 7, to those who are left, that is, it's the language of remnant. That normally that's about God's people. Those who are left, they, these outsiders, they will belong to our God and become leaders in Judah. They'll be like the Jebusites. The Jebusites were, were the people who lived in Jerusalem before God's people came in. And they kind of got incorporated in. You know, there is still hope for those who are under judgment. They can join the kingdom. They can be fully integrated. They can take on roles of leadership. You know, the, the coming king is reason for joy because he brings peace. And not, not in some hollow way, but a really tangible peace you can feel. You know, verse 11 to 17 spell that kind of peace out. You know, God will remember his covenant of blood with his people. So in verse 11 and 12, he'll free the prisoners. Verse 13 and 14, he's going to trounce their enemies so that by verse 15, you get this image of this kind of wild party. You know, it's, it's out of control because they're excited and there's been victory. You know, and the final verses show just how, how beautiful they'll be made and they celebrate abundance. Verse 16, the Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of his people and they will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive. New wine, the young men, the young women. Uh, you know, that's biblical peace. I mean, it's, it's a tangible thing. It's peace, something you can hold on to. It's an exciting new picture. It's transformation. Some of us will be more transformed than others. You know, it's that, that sense of being made beautiful and enjoying good, goodness. It's more than just an absence of conflict when the Bible talks of peace. It's about friendship and security and it's about abundance and celebrating. And that's life when the king comes. And again, we've experienced a little bit of that, haven't we? Because uh, Jesus has come the first time. You know, nations have been welcomed in so that we end up with a church where, where people are leading who, who aren't Jewish. 
You know, but the full experience of peace is only is yet to come when he comes again. And, and what's perhaps most striking about Zechariah 9, it might be two and a half thousand years old, but it's just so relevant in the way it calls for an emotional response in our situation. He's calling people to rejoice not because the king has come. Rejoice now because he will come. Rejoice because of hope, not because of your current circumstance. We don't rejoice as Christian people because what life is like now. We rejoice because of what the peace will be. You know, Zechariah is doing something that um, you know, thousands of years later, Charles Wesley did. If you don't know Charles Wesley, um, one of the founders of Methodism, and he wrote over a thousand hymns in his lifetime. Um, in the early days, the Methodists were, were persecuted. So um, they started, you might know that they used to preach out in fields. They started doing that because they were locked out of their own church buildings by people who didn't like the gospel. Uh, and so they just started, oh, you won't let me in, I'll preach out in the, and, and the field. And people came and gathered. Uh, but it was tough times. And he was concerned, he, didn't, he wanted to encourage his fellow Methodists. He didn't want them to be known as kind of miserable, doom and gloom people, but joyful people, singing people. Uh, and so Philippians 4, he read and, and uh, it says, rejoice, uh, the, rejoice always, again I say rejoice. And so he wrote this beautiful hymn, Rejoice the Lord is King, uh, your, king and, your Lord and King adore. Mortals give thanks and sing and triumph evermore. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again I say yeah, I saw someone mouthing it. Thank you, Haley. Yeah, rejoice. Um, and it goes on for lots of other verses I won't recount for you. Um, rejoice, why? Not because of where you are, but because of what will be. That's Zechariah's message. I think it's really helpful for us today. It's really helpful for the challenge of being emotionally joyous. I think Christians, we often struggle to, to resolve the tension between the fact that, you know, we do sometimes feel miserable, sometimes we despair. With a passage like you know, Philippians 4, which says rejoice always. And so um, sometimes we end up reducing joy down to being this, you know, it's something deeper than an emotion, um, which feels to me just like a fudge, you know, that a joy stops being joy. What Zechariah is doing is offering us a better solution. Rejoice now because of what will be. Feel emotion now based on hope, not circumstance. Now, Martin Luther's life captured that. Um, uh, he experienced real despair, uh, reformer of uh, the 16th century. Um, I think if he was around today, he'd be clinically depressed. Uh, we'd kind of have him on drugs. Uh, you know, there were times where he spent days locked in his room, uh, unable to get out of bed. Uh, to quote him in a letter to a friend, for the last week I've been thrown into hell and the pit. My whole body was so bruised I still tremble in all my members. I had almost lost Christ and was thrown to the billows and buffeted by storms of despair so that I was tempted to blaspheme against God. You know, despair doesn't stop being despair. Uh, dark periods can be horrific and prolonged, and even that's the case for us now. And yet despair is brought low because the king is coming. A commentator on Luther's life um, on how he dealt with it in this kind of despair, wrote, God can be trusted in the midst of the darkness and has promised that the darkness will end for a day is coming when the circumstances that drive us to despair will finally be resolved. So I don't want to be trite about the reality of not feeling joyous. I, you know, I'm not going to pretend the difficulties won't keep occurring. The people of Zechariah's time were in difficult times. 
There will be times still for us to mourn, but we are freed as well to be people of joy because we are shaped by the King who's coming to bring real peace. We can be joyous not because of now, but because of what he will bring. See, the king is coming. How do you feel about that? I hope as you look at a passage like this, you, you, you do feel it. Now, there'll be some here that perhaps need to feel afraid and you need to sort things out with God and be right with him, be trusting that king. But for we who know Christ as our king, we need to rejoice, be excited. And we're going to spend some time in a very tangible way remembering what Jesus has done and remembering that he'll return again by, by sharing in the Lord's Supper. We're going to hand out, we're going to sing a song to prepare our hearts and minds so musicians can come on up. Uh, and helpers are going to come around as we sing and hand out bread and wine. If, if your trust is in the Lord Jesus, if you are rejoicing that the King will come again, I want you to take the bread and, and there's wine or grape juice uh, Hold on to them and we'll drink together and celebrate that the king has come and will come again. But if you're not yet sure, don't, don't feel you have to. If you still stand in fear about the fact that he might return, um, just hold back. Come and speak to me later. The king is coming. Rejoice. Why don't we pray before we sing? Our Lord and Father, we thank you for... The gentle, humble king, the one, the Lord Jesus, who doesn't need to show off his power or serve himself with it, but rather deals with it so graciously. We thank you for the fact that he has come and already offered peace to we who are far away, and we thank you that he will come again. Father, we pray for our country that our friends and our neighbours would know real security in the Lord Jesus, not uh, the passing security of things of this world. And Father, we pray that we would be people of joy, even in the hard times, that we would be able to rejoice, not because of what we're going through now, but we would be people of joy because we know the peace that you will bring, the joy and the abundance that awaits us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.